we're going to be in John chapter 18. Uh, it has been a minute since we were working through John, many, many minutes actually, several weeks, and you may recall that where we left off, we had just got to the top of the roller coaster, and Jesus is about to be arrested, and this passage, we'll be looking at the first 14 verses today, and we are cresting the hill, heading toward the crucifixion and, of course, the resurrection. And believe it or not, I actually only have one point in my sermon today, only one. Uh, I cannot guarantee that it will make it any shorter, may make it longer, I guess we'll have to see, but there's only one point, and I think it's John's singular point in this passage, and I just want to give it to you up front. It can be kind of our north star as we work through the passage, and that is that Jesus is in complete control of his situation. Can you say that with me? Jesus is in complete control of his situation, and we'll see it through the setting, through the symbolism, through the circumstances, and we will see it unfold. Let's look right here, beginning of verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, so these are the things that he had said, uh, in the previous section, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, this garden is likely uh, identified with the Orchard of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. That's how it's identified in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what's interesting here is that Jesus is arrested in this garden, but what we'll see in this passage is he's really the one doing the arresting. Now, let's talk a little bit about the symbolism here. I didn't find all commentators talking about this, but I think it is profound enough for us to make mention of it that it is very interesting to note, and many believe, and I think they're probably right, that Jesus in this garden is not an accident. It's not an accident insofar as it was a place that he and the disciples often went. It was a place that Judas knew that they could be hanging out as they went to look for him. But it was also not an accident in what it communicates. Because what do we know about how the world began? It began in a garden. And what happened there? Adam, who should have set us on the right path and got us on the completely wrong path, he failed in that garden. But here is Jesus succeeding in this garden. The first Adam failed. The second Adam succeeds. In the first Adam's garden, he sinned. In the second Adam's garden, he overcame sin. Jesus conquers in his garden where Adam fails in his. In the first garden, first Adam hid himself. In this second garden, the second Adam boldly presents himself. In Eden, the sword was drawn. In Gethsemane, the sword was sheathed. And so I do not think that it is any accident that we have this symbolism. In fact, John even goes a step further. Look back there in verse 1, and you'll notice that they are going across uh, the brook Kidron. And this was right near the temple, and there was a drain that ran from the temple altar down to the Kidron, uh, the Kidron Ravine to drain away the blood of the sacrifices. And at this time of year, more than 200,000 lambs had been slain for the sacrifice uh, for, for sin in the way that it was being dealt with up to that point. So as they cross this Kidron Ravine, 
the ground was already red with the blood of sacrifice. So that, again, I do not think is an accident. I think that is a providential intervention and symbolism that we need to pay attention to for what is coming. Now, between verses 1 and 2, there is a gap that is uh, purposeful here in John that is filled in by the other accounts of the Gospels. This is the part where Jesus is overcome by his sorrow, not simply of knowing that he was going to the cross, but also knowing that he would be bearing the weight of the wrath of God and the sins of the world. That is the, the, the distance where he falls to the ground and, and, and sweats drops of blood because of the agony. And so that between verse 1 and verse 2 gets us to verse 2 here in John where it says this. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now there's a little bit of debate here on exactly how many uh, soldiers and such would have been involved. The language that's used here could be as few as a couple hundred, couple hundred and fifty, could be as many as a thousand. So there definitely was a healthy, strong band of soldiers that had come to arrest Jesus. And clearly, I think the inference here, all of his disciples. And then we see how that unfolds in just a moment. But it was quite a crowd, a substantial sum, that has come to arrest Jesus. But watch what happens in verse 4 here. This is of paramount importance and really underscores <coughs> the point that John is making here. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? So the point that we need to see here is they didn't sneak up on Jesus. The situation didn't sneak up on him. He knew exactly what was going to happen. So again, unlike the first Adam, he didn't go to the garden to hide. He went to the garden to be arrested, to be revealed, to see his sovereign plan work itself out. Now, I think this is as clear as the nose on our proverbial face here in this passage, but not everybody thinks so. In fact, back in 1906, there was a uh, well-known book, caused a lot of trouble, still causes some trouble, called The Quest for the Historical Jesus, and Albert Schweitzer wrote it this way. He said, There is silence all around. The Baptist appears and cries, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Soon after that comes Jesus, and in the knowledge that he is coming as the Son of Man, he lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on the last revolution to bring all of ordinary history to a close. It refuses to turn, so he throws himself upon it. Then it does turn, and it crushes him. But the wheel rolls onward, and the mangled body of the immeasurably great man, who was strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual rule of mankind and to bend history to his purpose, is hanging upon it still. So I think he should be commended for good prose, but he should be rebuked for horrible theology because that it is exactly not what John is saying. It's not what he's saying in verse 4. It's not what he's saying in the passage, and that is not what the Bible teaches. Jesus was not a victim. 
He was not simply a martyr for his cause. He sovereignly put himself in this situation to fulfill the mission that God had given him. Redemption. And to make it possible for anyone who would turn from their sins and trust in Christ to be friends with God. This is not an accident. This is providence working itself out. John MacArthur has a better take on this, and he says, As God incarnate, Jesus was always in absolute control of all the events of his life. That control extended even to the circumstances surrounding his death. Far be it from an accident, Jesus' sacrificial death was the primary reason he took on human life in the first place. It is the pinnacle of redemptive history. So the first Adam went to the garden to hide. The second Adam went to the garden to be arrested. Now, look at verse 5. <clears throat> they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. So this is in response to the question of who do you seek or whom do you seek? Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, that's very important because the language that he's using there isn't just saying, hey, I'm the guy you're looking for. This is connoting deity that he is answering, I am. And I don't think you can read this and not see all of the I am statements throughout the Gospel of John, through the other Gospels. I don't think you can read this and not see all of the I am statements in the Old Testament. When God meets with Moses in the book of Exodus, that same I am is used. And so Jesus, again, not a victim of history, not a martyr for the cause, not simply deluded and confused and never asserting that he was God says exactly the opposite. I am Jesus, but I am also God. Now look at this. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, okay, so when you see that pointed out again, and you see the language with what's about to happen here, it further underscores what I just said about him communicating his divinity. They drew back and they fell to the ground, okay? Now, some of the uh, interpretations of this are laughable, of what people try to come up with that, that, that don't really take the divinity of Jesus seriously, but we'll not worry about any of those. What I think we can say is John is not explicitly clear by what is happening with this, but let me explain to you what, what I think is happening here, and I think it's pretty obvious that when he communicates his identity and uses this language, there's some kind of exercise or display of power that is so significant that it literally knocks possibly between two and 200 and 1,000 people to the ground and you cannot imagine, what in the world would Judas have thought? All of this, and they're betraying Jesus, and then here Jesus does this and says this, and displays his power in this way. So I don't think that it's any accident that John includes this detail, not simply because it happened, which of course it did, but also because of what it communicates. Whatever the exact specifics are here, it is some kind of exponential display of the divinity of Jesus. And then we have verse 7. So apparently, they pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and then Jesus, 
Again, note his control of the situation here, okay? He's driving the bus, not them. He asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. <coughs> this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those who you gave me, I have not lost one. Now, what, what Jesus is clearly doing here linguistically is he is focusing their attention on him and not the whole band of disciples were there. Clearly, having that many people, it was obvious that they had come with the, the intention of arresting all of them. Find out from the other Gospels, there's some kind of an exchange there. And uh, Mark, we believe, his history believes, uh, ends up running away naked somehow in the middle of that, of them trying to get away. His, his, his tunic is pulled off. That's what his account talks about. And what Jesus is doing there is not simply helping out his friends. It is also the fulfillment of specific prophecy. But time and time and time again, he has talked about uh, all of the ways that he is going to preserve his disciples and get them to the end with him, except for Judas. That was the fulfillment of prophecy. In fact, Luther, Martin Luther, believed that this act of protection that Jesus works here was the greatest miracle of all that happened in Gethsemane. So clearly, Jesus was illuminating prophecy and in sovereign command of the situation. Now, that gets us to verse 10. And uh, th this is one of those times when I really love and appreciate the Bible for keeping it real, okay? Because you would think uh, if this was some kind of farce, it would not go the way that it's about to go here. You would... You would think that there would be some insertion of, so Jesus looked lovingly at the disciples and touched them each and said something kind to them. He's already done that. But you'd think you'd get a little bit of like music swell and something happen in here right before they part ways. But instead, what you get is uh, over-the-top R-rated violence, okay? Not from Jesus, but from Peter. Look at this. Then Simon Peter, having a sword... Okay, so the, the concept here is there was a little, almost like a, like a dagger that one kept under their clothes. And so apparently, the, the back and forth, Peter's had enough of it. You, we, we learn from this gospel and from the others, he's a very hot temper personality. And uh, he draws the sword, and he struck the high priest's servant, and he cuts off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. And the way this is sometimes presented is that, uh, you know, Peter was making this strategic blow, like he's, I don't want to hurt this guy too bad. I'm just going to get him on the ear, a little close shave, make my point. I don't think that's true at all. I think what's likely is that Peter swung the sword to kill this guy, and maybe he moved his head out of the way, and he only ended up getting the side of his helmet in his ear. I mean, this is about as real as it gets. And the fact that his name is included here, of Malchus, I think all of this underscores for us the veracity of this account. Now, thankfully, in this church, I'm preaching to the choir. We, we don't have any questions about the authority of the scriptures. But lots of people do. And I think these types of detail 
that, that show just the grittiness and the earthiness and the, the authenticity of this being real history unfolding. I think our further belay points, if you will, as we climb the, the rock wall of our own journey with God to remind us that we don't have our faith anchored in thin air, but it's anchored in actual factual history. Now, beyond that, look at what Jesus does here. Look at this in uh, verse 11. So Jesus says to Peter, said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So isn't this profound and poignant? Jesus knew exactly what was happening. He knew exactly what was coming. He had been literally falling to the ground and sweating drops of blood, this just intense physical response to overwhelming grief. And here at this moment where there might be a chance to escape, he tells Peter, this is not the way. There's another way. And the way is the way of suffering and death and ultimately glory. So we can appreciate Peter for caring about Jesus, but we can appreciate Jesus all the more for actively choosing to do the hardest thing that's ever been done. Now, this language here, <clears throat> drink the cup that the Father has given me, that is a metaphor for death and a symbol of God's wrath. You see that all over the Old Testament. Psalm 75, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, several places in Jeremiah. You also see it again in Revelation 14. And he's talking there about the physical suffering of the cross, and in addition to that, the bearing of God's wrath, which I don't think any of us could come close to truly understanding the weight of that. This is almost a mental exercise that, 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 that it really doesn't even help us. But if whatever we could picture as the worst possible series of things that could ever happen to us or to someone else, what Jesus would have endured in, 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 in taking upon himself the wrath of God would have been that times 10 billion. And Jesus says, no, this is the path to walk. Not violence against the soldiers, but the allowing of violence against me. Because if I don't do this, there will be no redemption. There will be no forgiveness. There will be no friendship with God and eternity opened to you. I must drink this cup that the Father has given me. And that gets us to verse 12. So the band of soldiers... And their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. <coughs> now, obviously these are historical figures uh, that, that you can find in other source, sources and so on. And part of what you get there in verse 14 is the connection that is made of him saying the advice when Jesus is going to be uh, basically dragged up and he and Barabbas will be presented and, and, and so on and, and uh, 
that one man should, should die for the people. Now, let's talk about what we can do for this or do with this in our lives. So this one point that we've kind of looked at from all these different uh, angles and so on and so forth. And I think there's a couple of different points of application that we can make here under this idea of Jesus being in complete control of his situation. The good news is that not only is that true, but he is also in complete control of our situation. And the doctrine that is obviously in view here throughout this passage is the sovereignty of God. And this is one of those doctrines that it, it's a big one, and we love it at times when you end up getting a tax return that you thought you were going to owe money, and then you get money. Yay, Providence! Uh, we are not so excited about it uh, when you get a speeding ticket uh, or you realize, oh, not only are you going to owe money, but it's going to be like, I don't know, eight, nine, thirteen thousand dollars $13,000 that you now have to figure out where to come up with. But it is no less true when the news is bad than when the news is good. And I think that passages like this help us because, again, it's one of those anchor points that even though we don't understand all of the nuances of how human freedom plays in there to, to, to the degree that it does and, and God still accomplishes his will, and then we always have situations where really, really awful things happen, and immediately, even people with robust theology ask, what in the world is God going to do with this? This, this is a messy doctrine. But our lack of fully understanding it does not make it any less true and does not make it any less obvious in this passage. So this is one of those that I think that there is a tension to be managed here that will never be fully resolved. But that should not cause us to fear. <clears throat> it should not cause us to doubt. It should cause us to press in and wrestle and struggle and read good books and have good conversations with Christians that are maybe a little bit further down the path uh, than we are and to seek the Lord and how this bears out. But a passage like this is so helpful because it's so clearly on display in this passage. Jesus could have orchestrated this a hundred thousand other ways, and he chooses not to. And here is an example of it. And again, think of all that this makes possible for us. This is the story of redemption on display. Had he said, that's it, I'm tapping out, I'm changing my mind, none of us would be here tonight. And none of us would have any hope of heaven. So this doctrine of Jesus being in complete control of his situation and of our situations, it should give us great comfort. It should give us great comfort. And I found this quote. Actually, this is a quote I've known for years, but I, I remembered it this week as I was prepping this. Uh, this is an old Puritan quote that I find to be very helpful and poignant, particularly when the bad things of life happen and we're scratching our heads and we're wondering what in the world is God up to. 
He says this. He says, judge not the, the, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Is that not so true in this passage and then what we're going to see in the weeks to come? If there was ever a time when there was a frowning providence, it would have been in these final moments of Jesus' life. But yet, after this cross, there is the crown. After this horrible death, there is the resurrection. From death comes life. The ultimate smiling face. And I think through this, part of the call to us, again, particularly in the awful moments of life, isn't necessarily to understand what God is up to to the hundredth degree. The way that, way that I kind of think about it, and goodness, I have a hundred situations like this in my life that I still don't fully understand what God was doing or whatever. It, it's that it's almost like we're driving on a bridge. And at some point, the... The, the proverbial bridge of our understanding eventually runs out. And we can't go into the, the final recesses of what God is doing. Part of the, 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 the total depravity that we still have to deal with to a degree, the, the remaining sin, our, our faculties are darkened, and we don't fully see everything that God sees. We can't. If we did, we would be God. And that position is already filled. And so when we look at this, the call to us is to trust God and use passages like this as fuel to keep that fire of trust going. So the next hard thing you face, I want you to remember this passage. No matter how out of control it looks in your life, no matter how out of control it may actually be in your life, Jesus was in complete control of his situation and he is still in control of yours. The goal is to trust him. And I think one other thing to, to kind of keep in mind here, to keep in view, because suffering, as we have discussed over the years, is, is very disorienting. I mean, it's, it's like that old quote from the, uh, who was it, the theologian Mike Tyson, right? That everybody has a great fight plan until they're punched in the mouth, Right? I think there's some wisdom in that, Mike. Thank you. Must have been before the face tattoo. But anyway, the point that I'm making there, and the point that I think he's making there, is that when we get into certain situations where unexpected things happen and, and, and life punches you in the mouth, it is easy to forget the things that we know to be true. And that's why passages like this are so helpful. It's to go back to it and to say, hey, listen, I may not understand this, but I do understand this. Jesus is in control. Jesus was in control. And also, the final thing I wanted to say on this point <coughs> is I think if we know that these, let's, let's speak figuratively here, Gethsemane experiences don't just happen in the life of Jesus, but they, they happen in all of our lives. I think just knowing that is a sincere help to us as well. I found this great poem that actually illustrates this. Listen to this. It says this. Down shadowy lanes, across strange streams, bridged over by our broken dreams, 
Behind the misty caps of years, beyond the great salt fountain of tears, the garden lies. Strive as you may, you cannot miss it on your way. All paths have been or shall be passing somewhere through Gethsemane. All those who journey soon or late must pass within the garden's gate, must kneel alone in darkness there, and battle with some kind of fierce despair. God pity those who cannot say, not mine but thine, who only pray, let this cup pass and cannot see the purpose in Gethsemane. When everything was at stake for Jesus, when he could, as the old hymn said, he could have called 10,000 angels, he didn't. Because he was about the business of his father and he was completing the mission and he was securing redemption for anyone who will turn from their sins and trust in Christ. When everything was on the line, Jesus held the line. And because he did, he will help us when we find ourselves in our own Gethsemane. When we find ourselves in our own what in the world is God doing kind of moment. He will give us the grace we need to stand up in those times. So friends, the way that I, I want to end this message is really just glorifying Jesus. Just being thankful and marveling again. Being overcome with immense gratitude for the greatness and the glory sovereignty and the providence of God that is on display and that we frail as we are are invited into life with him it just leaves us speechless so let's go to the Lord and pray thank him for what he has done and ask him for continual grace in our lives let's pray oh Lord we are so thankful for your power and your might on display in this wonderful passage. You were and are in complete control of the situation. Oh Lord, we get so turned around. We get so fixated on the wrong things. We get so overcome by our emotions and our questions and our unbelief. But Lord, yet in the midst of it all, you never give up on us. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for your grace that you have and do show to us. Lord, we know that you will continue to show it to us, not because we deserve it, but because of who you are, because of your character, because of your commitment to fulfill your promises. And Lord, we are thankful to be your people. We are thankful for this passage tonight. We're thankful to be a part of this community that loves and values the Bible and wants to see real change in our own lives. So Lord, we, we indeed glorify you. We praise you. We confess our deep and abiding need to you, both as individuals and as a church. And we pray that both in our lives and as a community, we would
continue to see what only you can do. In us, through us, for us, in spite of us. Lord, we thank you that you are in complete control of the situation. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name.